Father, for some of us who are part of this church, our hearts are heavy this morning. And yet, though we may not feel it, what we need to see more clearly than ever is Jesus Christ. And even if we're not part of a church, we certainly don't feel that need. But what we need more than anything else is to see Jesus Christ clearer today. So we ask now that you, by your Spirit, in generous portions pouring him out upon us all, would open our eyes to see Christ. And seeing him, we would rightly see everything else. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're in Mark chapter 8, so if you've got a Bible, you can leave it open there. Mark chapter 8. And at this point, we are literally at the halfway part of Mark's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, when you come to this part of Mark chapter 8, you come to sort of this great hinge. It's sort of like this turning point in the gospel account. It's this hinge that sort of closes Act 1 and then begins Act 2. And Act 1 closes with this wonderfully climactic scene. And we're now at this turning point, this pivot, this hinge in the gospel account. Until now, there's sort of been one question that's dominated the first half of the book. The first half of the account was dominated by this one question, which is, who is this Jesus? This story, that, this person that fills the pages of this narrative, who is this Jesus from Nazareth? That's been the predominant question of the first eight chapters of Mark. For example, it's a question we heard from the mouth of the disciples back in chapter 4. If you remember, as we walked through that section, Jesus had calmed the storm with just the word of his mouth, and the disciples began to ask themselves, who then is this that even the winds and the waves should obey him? And that's been sort of the underlying question through these chapters. Who then is this? Who is this Jesus from Nazareth? And as we've been reading the story, we learn that people in the story are coming to all kinds of answers to that question, all kinds of questions. For example, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day who hate Jesus, they've concluded he's a man with a demon. That's who he is. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is a demon-possessed man. It's by the power of some dark force that he's doing what he's doing. Others have come to different conclusions. For example, his family. We saw in Mark that his family came to the conclusion that he's out of his mind. That's who he is. That what he needs to be is locked up in a basement, put in a straitjacket, because Jesus has gone nuts. He's lost his mind. The others in the crowds, they've come to a different conclusion. They're not sure what to make of him, but they like this Jesus because being around him, miracles sort of drop from his pockets. And so they always go around this Jesus because when you're around him, something good is going to happen. So clearly, he's somebody special. We're not just quite sure who he is. We saw the disciples. They don't know what to think of him. And all throughout the story, people are coming to these different conclusions about who Jesus is. Now, we as the readers of this account, we're not left in suspense. Because Mark, from his very first sentence, from literally the first words that he penned, he told us exactly who Jesus is. Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From the first verse, we heard, this is the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ and the Son of God. So we're not left in suspense. And yet what we, the reader, know, no one in the story knows. 
And so in the story, they don't know what we've been told from chapter 1, verse 1. And so they're beginning to figure it out. And what we've seen up until this point is no one's figured it out. No one gets who Jesus is. Even the people you expect to see him don't see him. Even the people you think would get him don't get him. It's, it's one thing if the outsiders don't get him, the insiders don't get him either. It's one thing if the opponents and critics don't get him. His friends and family don't get him. The people you would expect to understand who Jesus is don't. And when we saw last week, Jesus had fed the, the, the 4,000, gotten into a boat with his disciples, and they were squabbling over lunch. You remember that? He must be angry at us because we forgot bread, we forgot lunch, and Jesus finally looks them in the face and says, Do you not understand? You've heard everything I have to say. You've seen everything there is to see. Tell me, could it be that you have ears but don't hear? And moreover, you have eyes but don't see. Could it be that you have eyes but don't see? And that was the weighty sort of condition that we were sobered with last week when we came to realize there's a sort of spiritual blindness that has affected these disciples and moreover, that's affected everybody. Everybody, the story is telling us, is spiritually blind. And you should hear that for a second. Because what's interesting about the story is it's not just the people you would expect to be spiritually blind that are spiritually blind. It's one thing if the bad people in the story don't see God right. You'd almost expect that. They're bad. But in the story, it's saying even the good people don't see him. The churchmen don't see him. In the story, the pastors and the religious leaders, the seminary professors, the Bible teachers, nobody seems to see him right. And, and what the Bible does is it levels the playing field to say all of us are in the same condition. You see, because otherwise, we've got this natural bent in our heart that says it's the other group. Why can't they just see things right? Liberals are convinced that if conservatives could just see everything right, we'd all be in a better place. And conservatives are convinced it's the liberals who are blind. If they could just see reality as it was, we'd all be in a better place. The religious think it's the irreligious that don't see. The irreligious and the atheists think it's the religious that don't see. If they could just wipe out religion, we'd all be better. And every group is convinced that the other group doesn't see. And the Bible comes and says, none of you see. The good don't see and the bad don't see. The liberals don't see and the conservatives don't see. The religious don't see and the irreligious don't see. Nobody sees. And so there's this question that begins to bounce in our head. What do we do when we don't see? What are the spiritually blind supposed to do? Hear that again. What are the spiritually blind supposed to do? And just as that question is sort of bouncing around and swirling about in our brain, Mark just so happens to follow up with the story we heard Sajan read for us. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and following. If you've got a Bible, you can turn it open there. In the beginning of the Bible is a, is a list of the books. You can find the page number. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and following. It's a very odd story. When you read the story, some of it sounds like stuff we've already heard before. Right? When you read the story, you see some similarities. Some people come to Jesus with a blind man. And in fact, they beg Jesus to lay his hands and touch him. Now, we've seen that before. In fact, back in chapter 7, there was the deaf-mute man, 
and some people came to Jesus and begged him to touch him and heal him. We've seen that. We see in Mark 8, in this passage, Jesus takes this blind man by the hand and leads him privately out, away from the crowd. We even see in verse 26 that he tells him, don't tell anyone what just happened. Now we've seen that before as well. With the deaf-mute man, Jesus led him away from the crowds, privately dealt with him, and then commanded him, don't say anything to anyone. Right? We've, we've seen that before. In fact, throughout the account of Mark, Jesus has several times told people, don't tell anyone about me. Jesus keeps saying that. In a way that we sort of scratch our heads, what's with Jesus telling people not to tell anyone? I think part of the answer, as we've said, is Jesus doesn't want to be seen as basically a, a vending machine for miracles. If whenever Jesus is around, good things drop out, it'll be very hard for him to turn the corner and tell you, if you're really going to come after me, what I have for you is not a miracle, but a cross. That's what he's going to say next week. If you're really going to come after me, then what I have for you is a cross for you to bear. Your sin gets put to death. You die to yourself. You take up your cross and follow me. That's not going to be easy to hear if you constantly think Jesus is a spiritual genie or a spiritual Santa who's out to give you good things. And so Jesus constantly has been telling people, don't say who I am to anyone. We've seen that before. And then you've got this oddity here again, this stuff with the spit. What's with the spit? It's been two times already, right? Two times already, and, and we've already seen that before. He spits on his eyes, and he touches him. And as odd as all of that is, hear me, and don't miss this, as odd as all of that is, what comes next is even odder. I don't know if odder is a real word. More odd? It's more odd, right? What comes next is even more odd. Verse 23. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Now pause there for a second. Jesus never does that. Jesus never moves to heal someone and then says to that person, Wait, did it work? Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus didn't put his fingers in the deaf man's ears and then say, Wait, tell me, can you hear? Raise your hand, this hand, this hand, this hand, if you can hear some. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus never sort of tests to see if his miracle worked. So here, what's with the question? Why does he spit on the man's eyes, open his eyes with his hands, and then say, can you see anything? Right? We want to say back to the text, of course he can see something. You're Jesus. You touch someone, they're going to see. That's the way that it works. Right? What do you mean to ask, do you see anything? What an odd question. Well, if that's odd, Jesus asking that is odd, then what the man says is even more odd. I got it right that time. More odd. Verse 24. Do you see anything? And he looked up, this is the man, and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And I want to add, and this time, he opened his sight, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, if I'm seeing this right, it appears at first glance like the miracle didn't work. Right? Like, like Jesus touched him and somehow something got short-circuited in his fingers. 
And something didn't go just quite right. I mean, you get this. Jesus touched the blind man. The man opened his eyes. And he said, I can see, sort of, kind of, partially, a little bit. I can see, but everything's a little bit hazy, a little bit fuzzy. It's not quite clear. He says, I can see people, but they look like ants from the Lord of the Rings. They look like trees that are walking. Right? It, it, it worked, kind of, sort of, a, a little bit. Now, what's with that? Right? Why does that happen? Right? Why does it feel like the text is saying there was a sort of power shortage in Jesus' miracle? That he sort of swung and missed and had to try again a second time, put his hands again and say, how about this time? Did it work this time? This is so odd and so curious that some have suggested maybe this is why Matthew and Luke didn't even include this story. Right? Because it's so curious that it's almost a little bit embarrassing. Right? Maybe that's why they didn't include this account when they were trying to tell the story. And, and as a two-second aside, I want to say to you, this, by the way, is another reason why you can trust this account. Why you can trust what Mark's writing. If you were making this up, if you were going to come into the first century world and make up a story so that Gentiles who have never heard of Yahweh before or Israel, or any of this, and now Jews who won't have anything to do with Jesus, if, if you're going to try and convince them this is a Savior worth following, you wouldn't have made up this story. You wouldn't have made up the story of the short-circuit miracle, of the power failure miracle. You wouldn't have made up a story like this unless it happened. And Mark is simply telling you what happened. But why did it happen? Why did it happen this way. Now, we've read through Mark's account enough already to know this is not how it normally works. This is not how Jesus operates. Till now, Jesus says a word and the storm dies. Jesus says, be still, and the winds cease. Till now, Jesus says, get out, and demons flee. Till now, Jesus says, be clean, and leprosy is gone. Till now, Jesus touches a diseased person and they are cured. For goodness sake, till now, Jesus says, get up to a dead person and they get up from the dead. It cannot be that Mark is telling us, while he had power to raise the dead, blindness somehow presented a problem that was too hard for him. So then, what's with this miracle? What's with the stages of it? What's with, you could say it this way, what's with the gradual nature of it? What's with the slowly beginning to see? What's with the progressively beginning to see? What's with the, I can sort of see, but not quite clearly, and another touch, another time with Jesus is required for me to fully see? Why? Well, we've already said in Mark that these miracles always aren't just some random display of power. Jesus is not a magician that's just showing off and giving you tricks. Instead, these miracles are always pointing to something. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to see the miracle and see through the miracle to see something else. So the question is, what are we supposed to see in how this man comes to see? Right? What are we supposed to see in how this man comes to see? You'd almost pause and wonder, what benefit could be in Jesus' mind for his disciples seeing 
that here's a man who couldn't see anything, and then he begins to see this incredible breakthrough, but not quite clearly. Not everything and not all at once, but he begins to see slowly and gradually. And that another time and another touch with Jesus has him seeing more clearly. Tell me, does that sound like anyone in the story? Is that not exactly what the disciples are like? Have we not lamented last week and today about their spiritual blindness? That they have eyes but don't see. That they don't seem to get it. Could it be that Jesus performs this miracle exactly this way as an illustration for them to understand what I did for this man is what I intend to do for you? That what I did for him is what I can do and want to do and intend to do for all my disciples, for all who are spiritually blind. Could it be that the miracle really happened and at the same time is a parable that's supposed to teach these disciples who are seeing it something? Well, as that question is sort of bouncing and swirling in our brain, Mark very conveniently follows it up with just another story, a perfectly timed one as well. As we're wondering, can he do for us spiritually what he did for this man physically, we get 27 and following. This is what it says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he like he told the blind man, verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So just as we're swirling about in our brain, could it be that Jesus has healed this man in stages, let him see sort of, kind of, only to let him see fully later, as we're wondering that now, Jesus takes his disciples. He takes them to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and there he asks them, who do the people say that I am? Sort of a nice, easy, softball question, right? Nothing hard about that one. You could knock this one out of the park because it's safe. It's just sort of a, a straw poll. What do people say about me? What's the word on the street? And they tell him, some say you're John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. We saw in Mark that Herod had killed him. John the Baptist was this fiery preacher, intense, challenged the status quo, always called people to repentance, and maybe there was something about John that resembled in Jesus, and they thought, maybe this is the spirit of John, come back in Jesus. Others said, maybe you're Elijah. Well, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, fiery as John the Baptist was, but also Elijah was one of the few prophets that did miracles all the time. Miracles fell out of Elijah's pockets wherever he went. And so now they're connecting the dots and they're going, maybe this is him. And in fact, Elijah has this curious story where he goes up to heaven without dying. There's a prophecy at the last book of the Bible that when the Messiah comes, the awaited one comes, that the Elijah-like figure will come again. So they're connecting the dots and they're going, maybe this is Elijah. And the rest of the crowd that can't make up their mind, they go, we're not sure if he's John. We're not sure if he's Elijah. He must be at least one of the prophets. They sort of cover their bases and go, we're not sure exactly which one he is, but we know he's up there. He's up there, right? He's got to be at least one of them because there's something amazing about him. Now, I want you to hear this very clearly. It's clear that the crowds, the people, have a very high view of Jesus. 
it's clear that they see him as no ordinary person. In fact, they literally pull out the Hall of Fame of Prophets to say, where does this Jesus fit in? And they go, he's clearly up there. And yet, as flattering as that might be, it falls woefully short of what they should have said. It falls woefully short, and they don't see at all. Look, if, if I said to you, if I was talking about Barack Obama, and I said, do you want to know who Barack Obama is? Barack Obama is the finest lawyer to come out of Harvard Law School. That's who he is. If you want to know who Barack Obama is, I'll tell you. He is the best lawyer to come out of the best law school in the country, bar none, equal to none, second to none. That's who Barack Obama is, the finest lawyer out of Harvard Law School. Now, have I paid Barack Obama a wonderful compliment? Absolutely. And yet at the same time, have I fallen woefully short of who he actually is? Don't you see that I don't see? Don't you see that I don't get it? Don't you realize that until I go, Barack Obama is the President of the United States of America, I haven't seen. John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord. Elijah came to prepare the way for the Messiah. The prophets came to announce that God was coming. They were all pointers, and Jesus is the point. And if you don't see that, you don't see anything. You could pay him the highest compliment and you miss it completely. What we clearly see is that the people don't clearly see. They don't see Jesus. They are spiritually what the man was physically. They're blind. And now, Jesus follows this softball pitch with a high fastball, high and inside, that brushes them back. Because now he asks a question that's not safe. Now he asks them the question, verse 29, and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? He grabs them by the shoulders, looks them in the eye, and now throws a fastball high and inside and says to them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question that matters. And friends, I want you to hear, that's the question he's asking you this morning. Who do you say that I am? Now, at this point, if we're reading the story for the first time, if Mark has given us any indication of what these disciples are like, we can already imagine that what comes out of their mouth is going to make us sort of grimace, right? We know they haven't been so bright so far. They've been incredibly dull. They've never gotten it right. And so at this point, you almost brace yourself for what the disciples are going to say. You remember they're on the boat. They saw the miracle. They're squabbling about lunch when he talks about bread. So you sort of brace yourself, and you're all saying to yourself, let's not try to laugh. Okay, please refrain from laughing. We can't, we've got to excuse them and pity them for whatever comes out of their mouth. Just give them some time and patience. And so Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. All the way until 822, nobody saw it. N nobody got it. And Peter, foot in mouth Peter, Peter always saying the wrong thing, Peter. 
That Peter, I can promise you, had never till that moment in his life uttered a more beautiful sentence with his mouth than to say, you are the Christ. And we, the reader, in our heart, we begin to jump in our soul and go, he's seeing it. Right? He's, he's getting it. What an incredible breakthrough. He's starting to see. And, and you should know, Peter's not just speaking for himself. He's speaking for all the disciples. He's sort of the spokesman. Jesus' question was in the plural. Who do you all say that I am? And Peter, as a spokesman for the disciples, say, you are the Christ. Meaning, we're all starting to see. In fact, this scene is so incredible that when Matthew writes about it in his gospel account, he says literally that Jesus responds to Peter by saying, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not show you this, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. Meaning, my Father in heaven has done for your spiritual eyes what Jesus' hands did for that blind man's eyes. You're starting to see. Now, one pastor made mention of something wonderful for us to notice that we ought not miss. I want you to hear this. Do you notice in the story that seeing Jesus as a good person, seeing him as a great leader, a wise sage, even the greatest of all the prophets, that does not require a divine touch. To see Jesus as a really good guy that you should consider following his principles, emulating his life and teachings, that doesn't require divine touch. That doesn't require special grace. You can, with your natural eyes, think highly of Jesus. It doesn't take any miracle of sight at all for you to respect Jesus Christ. It doesn't take any miracle at all for you to think he must be special. That's what the people thought. And yet, for you to see Jesus as he really is, for who he really is, requires divine touch. Requires God himself to get involved and open your blind eyes. Otherwise, you would never see and in this, what this means is, if you or I are trying to add religion to our life, if Jesus is your attempt of adding religion to your life, you could do that without God's special grace. You could do that in your own power. You want to add religion to your life, you could wake up one morning and go, you know what, religion's a good thing. I should add some morality to my life. I should pray more often. That'll round me out as a person. Listen, all you have to do is walk up to a religion and go, tell me what the beliefs are, I'll believe it. Tell me what the rules are, I'll keep it. Tell me what I'm supposed to do, and I'll do it. I'll sign the dotted line, I'll, I'm in. You can do religion on your own power. But Jesus, Jesus is inviting you into a relationship. And that you can't do. Unless he opens himself to you. That's the way relationships work. If you don't know me and you want to know me, unless I open myself to you, you'll never see me. Unless Jesus opens himself to you, you'll never see. And so, you need God to get involved for you to see Jesus Christ. For you to have a relationship with him. And that's what Jesus is inviting you to. One pastor noted, do you, do you even see Jesus' question? Who do you say that I am? Now, tell me, think of this for a second. Who talks like that? Muhammad didn't talk like that. Buddha didn't talk like that. The prophets didn't talk like that. None of them came and said, tell me, what's your assessment of me? Because they were all pointing you away to something else. They were always pointing you away to another truth. Jesus has the audacity to come and say, 
What do you make of me? Listen, if after eight years of preaching here, I gathered you all and said, listen, what do you make of me in your life? You go, brother, you, you must have swollen your head. You missed the point. You're not the point. You're a pointer, right? What audacity is it for Jesus to come and say, here's the question that matters over all questions. Who do you say that I am? Muhammad would have come and said, here is the way. Walk in it. Buddha would have come and say, here's the truth or the teachings. Believe it. Another religious leader or prophet would have said, here is life, the way to it. Go get it. Jesus comes and says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and I am the point. And what matters most this morning is how you answer this question, who do you say that I am? And by divine touch, the disciples say, you are the Christ, the Son, or you are the Christ. They begin to say that, and God, it seems in the story, has done for them what Jesus did for the blind man. Now, we need to temper our expectations. Because literally, in the next paragraph, next week, Jesus, Peter is going to put foot in mouth again, and Jesus will call him the devil. Next week, right? <laughs> literally, from blessed are you, Peter, to you are the devil, right? That's happening in one week. So what do you see? That he sees, kind of, sort of. It's clear, but not quite. It's hazy. It's fuzzy. It's, it's sort of like if a man said, I see people, but they're like trees walking. That's how Peter sees. Their understanding is not quite fully there. They don't get a Messiah that's going to die. Jesus is going to unpack and explain all of this, but that's okay. For this week, they've had an incredible breakthrough. And for this week, even if it's progressively, even if it's gradually, even if it's slowly, Jesus is assuring them and us, I will get you there. I'll help you see. And remember, Peter is the one who is giving his memoirs to Mark. He's Mark's source. And so I bet the reason that Mark has the story where Matthew doesn't and Luke doesn't is because this story stuck in Peter's mind. And Peter said, oh, oh, Mark, I got to tell you, there was this one time he went to this blind guy and he touched him once and it almost didn't seem to work. He sort of saw, but he didn't quite see. And then he touched him again and he saw. And I remember that story because that's what he did to my eyes as well. That's what he did in my heart. And friends, let me end by saying this is good news for all of us. It's good news for us because this story teaches us we're all blind. If you didn't grow up in the church, you're not starting at a disadvantage. Nobody in the church was any more prone to seeing Jesus. If you weren't around religion, you didn't grow up around morality or, or any of that, you're not starting at a disadvantage. Nobody sees God. Nobody's prone. Nobody has eyes to see. We're all blind, the good and the bad. Everyone's blind to Him. The story teaches us that. But the story also says, but you can have hope because Jesus can cause you to see and the way that it happens is wonderful good news. It's gradual. It's slowly. It's progressively. It's in stages. Sure, the Bible teaches there's the decisive moment where you go from, I was dead in sin to now I'm alive. I was an enemy and now I'm a child. But on the ground, in your life, in your stories, it happens gradually. It happens slowly. Right? You would want this instantaneous moment, but I want you to hear that's not how it happens. In fact, it's not even how it happened for the disciples. 
If you were to trace Peter's story, you know one of the hardest things to figure out is, when did Peter really see? You ever wonder, when did the disciples actually see? When did Peter actually see? For some of us, we'd go, maybe it's when he walked on water. If you've read the Bible, you know that scene. He literally says, you are God. You could call me out onto the water. I'll walk on water. He walks on water. So maybe you go, he sees. Oh, wait, but then one minute later, he, remember, drowns, right? Literally in that same sea. So you go, okay, he, he didn't get it then. Maybe it's this moment. You are the Christ. The confession on which Jesus would build the whole church. Except one second later, Peter, you're the devil. Right? So, okay, maybe it's not that moment. Or maybe it's later when, when he says, Jesus, even if all fall away, I will never leave you. I would die for you. And you go, that kind of commitment, that kind of love and loyalty for Jesus, that's him getting it. Except one second later, he denies Jesus three times. You're never quite sure when they get it. Even after the resurrection. Jesus has died for goodness sake. He's risen again. He's about to ascend into heaven and the disciples gather around to go, okay, is now when you're bringing about the kingdom to Israel. They still don't see all that he intends to do in the world. And the point is, they see gradually, slowly, kinda, sorta, in stages. And I want to say that's good news for you. If you're here and you don't see Jesus at all, you don't see what all the other people in this room are excited about. Why they sing the way they do. What is it about this book and this person, Jesus, that has so enamored their heart? Today, you can ask Jesus to open your eyes to see him. And if you're here and you do see him, I want you to hear this. This is good news for you too. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for three minutes or three decades, would you hear me for a second? This story is good news for you because there is more of him for you to see. You know what one of the most beautiful things of this story is? The man was honest with Jesus. Jesus said, do you see anything? And the man said, kinda. One pastor noted, if that man had said, yes, Jesus, I, I see, then he would have walked around the rest of his life bumping into trees, right? He, he would have never seen. But when Jesus asked him, he had the audacity to say, it worked kinda, but I need to see more. Isn't it good news for the person who's been walking with Jesus three minutes or three decades to know you can tell Jesus, I need you to touch my eyes again because I see, but not quite like I should see. Isn't it wonderful news for you to hear that today you could go to Jesus and say, I see you, but my vision's kind of stuck. Isn't it good news for my heart to hear? I can go to Jesus and say, I see that you hate sin, but your love for me is still kind of fuzzy. Could you touch my eyes again and make me see? Good news for you to go, I see you're in power and control. I get that. But the fact that you're good is really hazy for me right now. I see very clearly that you're in control. I have no doubt about it. But you're going to have to touch my eyes again because the circumstances of my life are clouding whether you're faithful and can be trusted. I see, but it's hazy, Jesus. So I need you to touch these eyes again because I don't quite get it. I don't see everything clearly. And the good news is three minutes into Christian faith or three decades into Christian faith, there's more of Jesus for you to see today. So tell him, I need to see
And with this story, everything in Mark changes. I told you at the beginning, this is the hinge. This is the pivot. This is the turning point. Till now, Jesus has been wandering all throughout the lands, going to the Gentile place, sort of without an agenda, without a calendar. He's just here and there. From this moment on, he's got his face set towards Jerusalem. And he will not stop until he finds himself impaled on a cross. And the end of Act 1, Mark 8, ends with Peter saying, You are the Christ. The end of Act 2 will end with Jesus on the cross and a Roman centurion saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And it will take these two halves together for us to get what Mark said in 1 verse 1. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For you to see, that's who he is. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the awaited one, the anointed one, the Son of God. Oh my goodness, my eyes are open to see. He came so that he could push away the darkness. How? By taking on that darkness. That the way that the light of the world came to bring you out of darkness into the light of the world was that he would be plunged into darkness for you on the cross. That's the two halves that Mark wants you to see. And so the question for you this morning is, who do you say that I am? May God himself open our eyes to see him better. Let's pray together.